Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Monday, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench, everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, Monday at 9, 8 central on CBS. Hackers are after your business data. I can help. I am Vi, the virtual intelligence assistant at Virtual Armor. Virtual Armor, partnered with Juniper Networks, provides cybersecurity services and end-to-end solutions to keep what's yours, yours. Defend yourself with managed firewall and managed SIM essential core services that are economical and efficient. Virtual Armor goes beyond just initial alerting to provide a thorough report on threats, vulnerabilities, and results. Let me help protect you. Contact me at JustAskVi. That's V-I dot com. And here we go. My opponent is against oil, guns, and God. I am the Democratic Party right now. 47 years, you've done nothing. Everything Americans value hangs in the balance. We have an obligation under the Constitution. To use every arrow in our quiver. This is the most important election in the history of our country. I believe that. This is Devious Motives with Brett Winterbull. I'm Brett Winterbull. It is Devious Motives. It's great to have you here. Great to be uh, talking to you today on all the big stories that are out there moving. And nothing bigger than Hunter Biden and Joe Biden Part 2. If it is uh, the, uh, what are we at? We're the lucky 13th episode of the Devious Motives podcast. And we've got a big story moving out of the New York Post for day number two. Well, for those of you who may be wondering, this is this is uh, the 15th, Thursday, the 15th of October, 2020. And we are about 18 days away from this uh, this upcoming election. Well, big stuff moving overnight as we found out that the New York Post, after being banned by big tech, by Jack Dorsey and, of course, uh, his loyal sidekick, uh, Jeff Zuckerberg uh, and, and his minions over at Facebook, The New York Post was locked out from being retweeted, tweeted, posted, any of that sort of stuff, uh, because uh, it's it's regarded as uh, suspect materials, suspect materials with suspect motives. Uh, This is devious motives, though, uh, involving the stuff that came out on, of course, what you saw from the uh, the craziness there with with uh, Joe Biden's son. And this is all part of that saga we talked about yesterday. The laptop shows up at a repair shop. Uh, the laptop's at the repair shop. Colonel Mustard in the uh, library. You, you get the de- deal. You get the drill. And what we have unfolding is, is something quite remarkable. Yesterday, it was Hunter Biden with a crack pipe in the hotel room uh, and cutting deals with Ukrainian oligarchs, the number three at Barisma. Today, it's cutting deals over in China with mysterious Chinese billionaires and uh, Chinese Communist Party officials. And whether or not my guy, the big guy, uh, was trying to get 850 a year as part of the the deal. And people are pointing at this and they're saying that that's Joe Biden. Joe Biden and Hunter are trying to cut deals. There's even a flow chart that they lay out with two different factions and two different elements and pass throughs and all that sort of stuff. Well, what this all adds up to is something very, very ugly and something very, very dirty. It looks like it's either 
influence peddling, or it looks like it's bribery, or it looks like something very shady. And where the mistake was made by social media in this regard is very simply this. You got in the way of the denial that the Biden team could have issued by making you Jack Dorsey and you uh, apparat chicks working for uh, Kamala Harris and Biden connected entities uh, over there at Facebook. And by saying we're fact checking and we're not posting and anything that's getting posted is being double, triple verified by us and, and all that sort of stuff. What you created was a, a, a denial point for the conservatives who can now run against the tyranny of big tech, the big tech tyranny. You know, the big tech caliphate that I talked about last week with Alan Bukhari, who wrote the book Hashtag Deleted. I mentioned this in yesterday's podcast. This book is hugely important. It talks about how it is big tech colludes with the deep state and government officials to do whatever the heck they want to do. It, it's really it's really quite something. So in what could have been a write off as, well, that's just a right wing newspaper coming up with stuff and we don't know. And this is a deep fake. Jim Acosta is out earlier today saying that the picture is a Hunter Biden with a crack pipe and standing kind of half naked in front of a mirror and staring in a, uh, off into the distance with a 10,000 yard stare and a Winston cigarette hanging out of his lips in the bathtub, that those are all deep fakes. Oh, OK, so is everything a deep fake? Is this all just a big part of a, of a ruse to try to discredit the, the squeaky clean Joe Biden? Because we do know for a fact that Hunter had a deal with Burisma. We do know for a fact that the, the Russian mayor of Moscow sent money over to Hunter. That was in the report, the Senate report that I know has been discredited. But all that stuff is going on, right? And what you could have had was just a straight up square off between the Biden team and the, the folks who are pushing the story about Ukraine and pushing about uh, China. And because... Jack Dorsey and Twitter made it about them. Now it is about them because in the intervening time that's that's taken place today, you have uh, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Lindsey Graham and Josh Hawley from Missouri coming out and saying we are subpoenaing Jack Dorsey, the kahuna at Twitter to come and see us next Friday and to testify what the heck big tech is doing to lock this stuff down? And oh, by the way, we're going to look to try to blow up Section 231 of the, of, of the, uh, of the Communications Act so that you guys can't be protected anymore and, and hide behind this thing is, well, we're just like a utility. We're just not, we're not content management. We are just, we're just the pipes that the information flows through. Well, you're not doing that when you're doing the, quote, fact-checking and the suppression that you announced last week on Facebook about how in the, in the immediate aftermath of the election, they're not going to allow anybody po to post anything that says that Trump won or that, uh, that, that Biden lost. No, no, no we're going we're gonna to put the suppressor there. And suppression is an ugly word. Suppression is an absolutely ugly word. And so here's my takeaway on this whole deal. It's possible that this is a dirty trick being aimed at Team Biden, but it's likely that social media is going to overcorrect and you are now going to set in motion the next 18 days of having Republicans, conservatives, middle of the roaders sitting there and saying, I'm not comfortable with unelected, unaccountable American oligarchs sitting in Silicon Valley calling the tune about what I can know and what I cannot know. 
I have no way to remove Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or Tim Cook or the boys over at uh, Google from uh, f- from my life except to quit those platforms. And I want to have some kind of an emergency kill switch to make sure that these unnamed, unaccountable billionaires don't get to set the tone, the temperament and the discussion here in this country. That's what people are going to say. Congratulations, Jack. You just made yourself the next big issue in this election. It'll be the economy, COVID, Black Lives Matter, the riots, law and order. It'll be corruption with the Biden team. And now it'll be big tech. That's a bad look. Uh, Steve Cortez with the Trump reelect campaign. Good to have you here joining us now. I want to get your thoughts on this town hall that's happening tonight with with NBC News, uh, with the president. And of course, over at ABC, George Stephanopoulos will be uh, interviewing former Vice President Joe Biden. What do you expect tonight out of this message? And I hope ABC does their job um, and I hope they really press him on these explosive Hunter Biden revelations, uh, because, of course, uh, it's being suppressed right now by social media, uh, Twitter and other social media companies. They're putting their thumb on the scale. They're trying to hide information from the American people, which I think is reprehensible. They've even suspended our campaign Twitter accounts this morning. I mean, that's outrageous because we're sharing information uh, about Hunter Biden. So ABC, uh, I hope, and then the good American citizens will be there tonight should really press him on this because uh, he's been lying to the American people, quite frankly. He's been saying forever that he had no knowledge of Hunter's foreign, shady foreign business dealings. And we now have strong evidence that he did have knowledge, intense knowledge uh, of it. So and then on our side, uh, you know, President Trump, I expect him to make the case primarily on the economy. Again, he's going to be in Miami, uh, where he's supposed to be, because we promised to go to Miami for an in-person debate today, which should be happening, by the way, right? I mean, the fact that these dueling town halls are happening just shows the country there's no reason that they couldn't safely have been together. The president is not sick, and he is not contagious, uh, clearly, or NBC would not be allowing him to do their town hall. Uh, so it's absurd that they're not together. It's not our fault. That's the fault of the debate commission. Speaking of another corrupt organization putting its thumb on the scale, the debate commission you know, a full week ago decided unilaterally with no consultation with our campaign and with no medical justification, they said that they were making it a virtual debate. We weren't going to participate in that. The president wasn't going to allow Joe Biden to do a Zoom call from his basement with potentially electronic assistance or staff assistance. You know, if he wants to be the commander in chief of the greatest republic in history, he's got to put on his big boy pants and get on stage with Donald Trump. Uh, that will happen in a week. We hope uh, that third debate, um, you know, for now is, is still scheduled. So it's a shame they're not together tonight, but at right. least we're going to get a chance to see both candidates uh, live in front of the American people. Without, without a doubt. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the uh, recent blow up. You're obviously familiar with all the all the cable news outlets. You've spent time on on on, on a variety of them. Uh, how about Speaker Pelosi really kind of losing it uh, on Wolf Blitzer a couple of days ago, talking about that she feeds the homeless and the hungry and and it's it's wrong all, all wolf was pushing was a completely straight and legitimate uh, contention that look why don't you get some aid out there to the people who need it 1.8 trillion is nothing to sneeze at speaker pelosi she, she seems right. to have really flipped her lid you know that was fascinating tv it really was and look i don't often praise cnn my former employer <laughs> uh but they did a good job there that was a real interview it was real journalism by uh, wolf blitzer and she just blew up at him and she said that he was a Republican apologist. I mean, when has a CNN anchor ever been called a Republican apologist? That really <laughs> is quite a, a reach. But look, here's the, you know, more importantly, though, than her TV appearance, which was kind of cringeworthy, uh, is the, are the policy implications. You know, I, I mentioned how great the economy is recovering, and it mm-hmm. is. But we know we're not back to where we were pre-pandemic. We're 
not at the heights of the Trump boom that we were enjoying in January and February uh, before the CCP virus uh, you know, became an, an epidemiological Pearl Harbor for this country. We know we have work to do. There are still too many people unemployed. There are still too many people who are anxious about paying their bills through no fault of their own. We've got to get these people help. The president is insistent on doing that. But Speaker Pelosi uh, insists on playing pandemic politics, um, and she wants to put all kinds of unrelated items, uh, sort of a liberal laundry list, into uh, a gargantuan bill. For example, just give you a quick one that's sure. ridiculous. She wants to, uh, to give stimulus payments to illegal migrants, uh, to people who don't belong in this country in the first place, people who trespassed into the United States mm-hmm. um, and are, are unfair competition in our labor market. She wants to give them checks, taxpayer checks. Uh, the president's holding the line on that. He's saying, absolutely not. We're not going to reward people uh, who broke into our country in this time of a pandemic of all times. We should never do that, but especially in a time when there's still, again, the economy's recovering with, with amazing speed and with a lot of power. But boy, we also know we're not there yet. Um, and, and this is no time to be playing pandemic politics. Unfortunately, that's what Nancy Pelosi uh, insists on doing. Steve Cortez joining us here, and, uh, and and good to have him with us. Two more questions for you. First one is is deals with the uh, the demographics of of this election coming up. Certainly, uh, Latino voting block, Hispanic voting block. The president's going to be in Miami, obviously, t- today uh, tonight for NBC's uh, town hall. Um, they seem to have been taken for granted by by the progressives and by, by the uh, by the Democratic Party. Uh, we watched those eloquent speakers coming from South Florida at the RNC arguing against this socialist push. That's group number one that I think has been overlooked. And what about the African-American vote? What about the black vote in America? Is it is it expected that they will continue to vote in line with these policies from Biden and Harris? Or do you think you'll see a substantial breakaway given the law and order messaging and the destruction in our cities? Right. No, listen, I think there's absolutely uh, there's a there's a secular shift going on here. There's a surge um, because the Republican Party under President Trump has become the party of workers. Um, and the Democratic Party is really the party of, of big moneyed interests, uh, you know, big tech, Wall Street titans, uh, the corporate media. Uh, all of them are lining up behind Biden and behind the DNC. Our side is really it's the movement of Trump and the deplorables. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of black and brown Americans are figuring out that they're deplorables. I mean, that they belong with us because they're working class people and specific to Latinos. Uh, you know, and I as a Hispanic myself, I focus a lot on this issue, of course, and on trying to message to the Hispanic community. You know, the Democratic Party has lurched so far to the left in 2020 that it's left a lot of Latinos behind as effectively political orphans. You know, we are as a people very conservative, uh, culturally, religiously, politically. And so a lot of uh, conservatively minded Latinos used to vote Democrat because they believed, you know, wrongly, they, they believed that it was still a party of workers. Uh, they're awakening to the reality um, that, that it is not a party that is party that is in any way welcoming to people with traditional beliefs or with a working class outlook. Um, and so given that, we're finding a lot of success with Hispanics. Right now, public polling shows us uh, in, the, in the low 40s nationally, Investors Business Daily just published a poll, shows us at 42 percent among Hispanics uh, for this election. I think we're doing better than that in our internal polls show us doing even better. But even that number, if if we're north of 40, that creates major problems for Joe Biden uh, looking at his chances on the electoral map, because it probably puts away Florida and Arizona in our column. And as I'm sure you know, the Hispanic community is growing big time in North Carolina. So it might really make a difference in North Carolina as well. 
And as somebody who grew up in El Paso, Texas, I'm well aware of uh, the dynamics there. And, and, and it's important. It's a hugely important voting block and one that's been taken for granted far too long. Final question for you. You've been very generous with your time, Steve. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. Uh, ACB there in the last uh, couple of days at these hearings. She's been rock solid. Can you believe this is a president who's got a third Supreme Court nominee in the first term? Uh, I mean, it is pretty it is pretty historic. It's fantastic. And look, I think that's probably going to be his most enduring legacy is the way he has changed the judiciary in this country. And it, and it was needed because we had way too much judicial activism, uh, too much disrespect, quite frankly, for our Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is really reshaping the federal courts, uh, both at the uh, at the lower court levels, as well as, of course, the high court. And, and regarding ACB, I mean, what an amazing I, I call her superwoman. And, you know, <laughs> I've got three daughters and I would love for my daughters to become a woman like her. I mean, I think mm-hmm. what she, both on the personal side in terms of faith and family yep. and then on the professional side, what she has already achieved in her life. And she's still young. She's got a long way to go. <laughs> Um, what she's already achieved is just incredible. She's as smart and likable a person as I could possibly uh, think of. It's, it's been a joy to watch her part. It's been kind of cringeworthy to watch the Democratic senators uh, questioning her. Uh, but she's going to get confirmed and very quickly. Uh, and she's going to be a credit to the court. Steve Cortez, great to catch up with you. Looking forward to talking with you down the road. I'm Brett Witterbull. It is Devious Motives. You're listening to Devious Motives. You're listening to Devious Motives. I'm always happy when I get a chance to catch up with one of my favorite people, and that is uh, Dr. Bruce Bechtel. Uh, He does terrific work on all things North Korea, South Korean security, all that that sort of stuff in that complicated part of the world. And it's good to have you back, doctor. One of the things that that strikes me is that in a conventional election year, you would think there'd be a lot of discussion about international security matters seems to all have been subsumed by by covid and, and and domestic policy rather than paying attention to the dangerous hotspots like north korea well that's certainly very true i mean even uh even when uh president trump was running in the uh primaries back in 2015 and 2016 as you recall during uh, many of those debates they actually talked about foreign policy and specifically north korea but everything seems to be overwhelmed by debates and arguments over the pandemic and uh, over the the condition that the elections are going to be in. Obviously, the elections are going to be different this time than they ever have been in the past with all the mail-in votes. So unfortunately, people aren't really talking about foreign policy. But I think what happened Saturday, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the big parade with the North Koreans, may have brought North Korea back into everybody's minds as far as it being a threat and something that must be dealt with no matter who gets elected this November 3rd. Without a doubt, Saturday, October 10th, North Korea celebrated the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Workers' Party of Korea. That's the country's ruling party. And the thing that, that drew everybody's attention is they had the parade of you know uniformed military personnel and equipment uh, going across, uh, uh, it should be noted, the newly renovated Kim Il-sung Square. Um, you, you saw a, 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 some ICBMs getting paraded. That felt like something very new, and it feels like people are very concerned about this, uh, Doctor. What do we know? What do we think? What do you think about what we saw on Saturday? Well, it just talk, well they displayed a lot of new stuff and stuff that's, that's less than a year or two old. But as you said, the thing that, that seems to be most concerning to a lot of analysts and policymakers that have actually spoken about it is the new ICBMs. They're longer than anything North Korea has ever displayed before. It's pretty cut and dry, pretty simple, because people tend to count the number of axles 
on the tra transporter e erector launcher that hauls those things. This one has 11 axles, so 11 set of wheels. Mm -hmm. The previous biggest one was the Hwasong 15, which, as you know, they successfully tested three years ago. That had nine axles, so it's longer. Um, there's no telling. I've been talking to my friends from the Fisher Center, the, the Fisher Missile and Science Center in, uh, in Israel and other friends at RAND about, you know, what are the differences between this and the next largest missile, the Hwasong 15? They haven't named this one yet, by the way. They just hold it out. Um, and it appears that, you know, for lack of a better term, it's just a lot bigger. Um, now, how does that affect us, you know, as far as being a threat? Everybody is assuming right now that because it's got that big second stage, which second stage just essentially means for a two-stage missile, that's the part of the missile that ends up landing and destroying stuff when it comes out of out of uh, the atmosphere. Right. That's much bigger, and and people are opining that that could mean it's got MIRVs inside. You know, uh, in other words, when it when it comes out of the atmosphere, then as, as, like the Russian missiles, it breaks into several missilettes, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term, mm -hmm. which of course makes ballistic missile defense. Uh, have a much harder mission trying to kill all those things before they actually hit something in the United States or one of our allies. Now, is that the case? I don't know. It could just be a bigger warhead that it, that causes a bigger explosion. We don't know what's inside of that nose tube, um, and we have never seen North Korea using MIRV technology before, but it's certainly a possibility. It so that's – go ahead. If if it is a MERV, are MERVs all are are MERVs nuclear or can they be conventional MERVs or can they be both? They they could they could be both. Okay. Um. You know, for example, they could have can they could have chemical warheads instead of nuclear warheads. Gotcha. Um. Although I think that's unlikely. I think that uh, you know they were going to actually fire something like that at the United States, knowing the retribution that they would encounter afterwards. They would probably go all or nothing. See what I'm saying? Sure. Um, that's my guess. But um, if they have MIRVs, the big problem, excuse me, the big problem that our ballistic missile defense has always had with more modernized missile programs like Russia and China is that MIRV technology they've had. But we've always said, well, we could take out a North Korean or an Iranian missile because we're looking at a single missile each time a missile comes in. We're not looking at that MIRV technology. That may be changing. We don't know. And, and just to put a, a, a final point on that, I have seen nothing about North Korea acquiring MIRV technology from either Russia or China. So the jury's still out on that. But I do have friends and, and fellow analysts who have said that that MIRV technology may be inside of that much bigger second stage now. Um, go ahead. Would that, would that represent... Uh, a threat, say it wasn't a threat necessarily to the United States per se, the mainland United States or Hawaii or, or Guam. Would this represent a threat? Would this vehicle represent a threat, say, to Japan uh, with those MIRVs being able to hit multiple targets uh, there, there on the islands of Japan? Sure. I think that's, that's a definite threat. Uh, I don't think they would need a missile like this, obviously, <laughs> to attack Japan because the range looks, I mean, the, the Hwasong 15 has a, 13,000 kilometer range. And wow. this one looks like it's even longer. Wow. 
Um, so, and you know, and the Hwasong 14 could hit Anchorage, which has, you know, 40% of Alaska's population. And, you know, someplace I've taken my family twice on vacation now. But, uh, you know, the missiles they would use to hit Japan are likely, you know, Nodongs, which has a range of about 1,500 kilometers. Um, they've got missiles that, that have a range of uh, 4,000, like the Musudan. So they would likely not waste their time firing these missiles that are going to take a long time to fuel and a long time to roll out at Japan since they already have missiles that can hit Japan very accurately. This is a missile designed to hit the United States. There's no doubt about it. And I think that that's part of the message they were trying to send us. And uh, we also saw a, uh, a submarine launch ballistic missile, or, or SLBM as it's commonly referred to, uh, which people are calling the Poguksong 4. And we've seen them fire two submarine launch ballistic missile versions of this um, and one land-based uh, version of this. So this is the fourth iteration of it. Um, and again, I, when people say, well, what, what's North Korea going to do with a missile that has a 3,000-kilometer range? They already have that. Why do they need that on a submarine? Well, a submarine gives it longer range, right? Right. The range of the missile depends on how close the submarine can get to someplace like Hawaii or Guam. Um, so it depends on how strong we think American anti-submarine warfare is. Um, will we be able to image that submarine when it's pulling out of port, for example, in Chinpo, North Korea? Or not? Would they be able to hide it? Because they've been able to do that in the past with other submarines, albeit submarines that were much smaller. So... People are saying that's not as much of a threat. I would just caution those who say that that SLBM is not as much of a threat to make sure that we know that we've really got a good handle on being able to detect those North Korean submarines when they leave port. All right, so I'll ask the obvious question: where where they get where where they get in the dough for uh, for for this uh, technology? I mean, it, submarine ballistic missiles. Uh, longer uh, uh, ICBMs. Where, where's uh, Kim coming up with the cash? Yeah, that, <clears throat> that's not just a good question. That's the question, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, we we we've talked a lot because it's kind of my bailiwick <clears throat> about North Korean military proliferation. Right. As far as I can tell, um, that has not slowed down. That gets them billions of dollars a year. Clearly, this stuff is not cheap. Um, so, you know, some of it, they're probably buying some of it. They're getting on the, on the, uh, dark market or black market or brown market. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I'm interested in is designs that they use for this missile, because we know the first stage is something they got from Ukraine. And it's not clear because Ukraine's government is so corrupt, whether they actually bought it from Ukraine or bought it from you know, um, corrupt Ukrainian officials, or if they just somehow were able to steal the designs for this missile, it's still not clear, but they are getting this stuff. You know, the missile, the, uh, excuse me, the submarine launched ballistic missile looks very much like the JL-1, which is a, uh, uh, a Chinese version of a solid fuel submarine launched ballistic missile. So they may have either bought that or been given that originally by the Chinese. It's just not clear. Um, but nevertheless, actually building those things once they steal or buy the designs is a very expensive 
proposition because it's not like they have assembly lines. They all have to be built by hand. Um, even scuds have to be built that way. So it is an expensive process. They've gotten some of it from, you know, their proliferation and other illicit activities, which is about 40% of the real North Korean economy. Um, I think it's important to note that the United States and the United Nations have been very effective mm-hmm. in stopping certain parts of North Korean illicit activity. That is to say, and then and shipping coal out, their, uh, their oil that they're getting in now, according to the panel of experts from the UN report we got um, in September, um, is down to 37% of what it was before the sanctions. That's a pretty big chunk, yeah, right? Um, so that's, that's effective. What, what does not appear to be very effective is the other money-making stuff they get from arms sales mm-hmm. and other illicit activities, and that's something that you know, frankly, I think we should be looking at harder uh, from a policy perspective. As, as you look at this uh, and, and these challenges, uh, we, we know that once upon a time you, you had this uh, this teeter-totter relationship between Iran and North Korea. When North Korea would flare up, Iran would go quiet, vice versa. And we know that Iran represented, what, 30 percent of the GDP for, for, for North Korea. That was essentially their field, uh, their field testing, their lab testing. Um Iran's hit hard times. They've got the coronavirus. They've been hit with sanctions. Is it possible that there's a third uh, character out there that's supplying North Korea? Could it be like the Pakistanis or somebody who's who's hard up for cash but has technology? They have a nuclear program in, in Pakistan. Is, is it possible that there's a, a, another sourcing vehicle that we're just not familiar with? Well, that is certainly possible. And Pakistan was a big customer, as you know, um, right up through the late 1990s right up until 2002, um, when essentially Colin Powell told their foreign minister, look, if you keep dealing with North Korea, you get no more foreign aid from us. And we just had a bigger stick, you know what I mean? (laughs) We just had more money. We just had more money than they did. And so the Pakistanis told the North Koreans to go pound sand. And and so there's no evidence that they have not renewed that relationship, I'm, I'm just not seeing that, although it's yeah. certainly possible. Egypt is another big player that has a lot of money. Um, we really spanked them pretty bad back in 2018 yeah. when we proved they were getting scud shipments in. And we also failed, excuse me, we also threatened to hold up foreign military aid to them. So right now we're not seeing anybody new. I will say this. I think the deal that you probably have talked about on your show about mm-hmm. China and Iran. Yes. That appears to have collaboration from the North Koreans, believe it or not. In fact, according to information that I received about a month ago, there was a recent joint and combined North Korea-China delegation that went to Iran. Wow. So that may be a new source for North Korea to sell still more stuff. They're already actively involved in Iran, but to get involved in more initiatives and projects working jointly with the Chinese. Now, as you know, this deal just started this year, the Iranian-Chinese deal. They're still hammering out the details, and so we don't know what role North Korea will play, and they're obviously not going to tell us. Um, so it will be interesting, and that, that raises another possibility for being able to raise a lot of funds, and uh, instead of helping the North Korean people by doing that, having giant parades like they did last Saturday mm-hmm. and investing in these new systems that they can use to threaten 
uh, democratic nation states. Great stuff. Uh, Dr. Bruce Bechtel, get his book. I mean, it is the most timely thing you can read right now. North Korean military proliferation in the Middle East and Africa, enabling violence and instability. It's a tremendous book. It's a wonderful read. And I appreciate uh, you coming by on the show today to help us unpack all this stuff there, Doctor. Thanks for having me, Brett. You're, you're my first priority ever for talking about this stuff. Devious Motives with Brett Winterbull. Monday, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, Monday at 9, 8 central on CBS.